as an outline. Hopefully that will be of some assistance to you. Well, people say that things come in threes, but the devil knows no such rule because this was the fourth wave of attack. But it didn't catch the bishop by surprise. He had a sense that this was coming when word arrived that his captors had entered his own town. He got out of bed and ordered a meal to be prepared for them. And when they came to the door to take him away, he greeted them there and asked that he could just be allowed to pray for one hour. And remarkably, these hardened henchmen granted his request. So touched were they by his kindness towards them, wondering to themselves why they'd been sent to capture such a generous elderly man. And as he finished his prayers... The men put him on a donkey and they brought him to the city and there he entered the stadium but not as a football player enters a stadium with a crowd cheering. He enters the stadium with a hostile crowd. His impaired sight may have spared him some of the details of what was before him. They hauled him before the assembled tribunal. The proconsul begged him, consider yourself and have pity on your age. He said, reproach Christ and I will release you. The bishop replied, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? Threatened with wild beasts and fire, the bishop stood his ground. He said, what are you waiting for? Do whatever you please. And they did. The crowd demanded his death, gathering wood, heating the fire, preparing to tie him to the stake. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, near the western coast of modern-day Turkey, was burned at the stake and was pierced by a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor in 155 AD. Where did Bishop Polycarp find such resolute courage? Where did he find such graciousness to men who were to kill him? Well, I'll tell you one of the best places he would have found such courage and encouragement. It's in this letter that is open before you. It's in this letter of 1 Peter because this letter of 1 Peter, this bishop had so studied its language, he'd so immersed himself in this book that as he himself wrote to churches, strengthening them, he wrote to the church of Philippi a hundred years after the Apostle Paul had written. And he writes this struggling church in Philippi and what he does is he just basically lifts whole lines out of the book of one Peter. He says, Jesus Christ who took up our sins in his body on the, on the tree, who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but for our sakes he endured all things, that we might live in him. Phrases straight from one Peter. Because here what you have before you is just, yeah, I know, another book of the Bible, but here, when this book is placed in your life, here is divine dynamite. 
Here are the words that gave, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, such courage, such strength, such graciousness, an ability just to survive. But that's not really what Peter says as he writes this book. He does not want Christians just to get by. He doesn't say to these Christians as he writes them themselves facing opposition, which we'll see in a moment, he doesn't say, look, I just want you to get through. Now, what does he say? Open up. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 6. What does it say? Will he get through? Will he be okay? No. His expectation is as they read these words, as they themselves face serious persecution, that they will greatly rejoice. They won't just get through, they will greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief of all kinds and trials. We're up to point B in your outlines of the first point, because Peter writes this letter, and it's most likely that he wrote this letter in 63 AD. In 63 AD, Emperor Nero is throwing Christians in jail because they were, quote, given to suspicion. And Peter is preparing these Christians for this first of many waves, as we'll see of the next hundred years of the church, many waves of persecution. I quoted from the book, um, the Fox's book of Christian Martyrs, and you can read about it uh, in that particular book. But for Peter personally, there was only one wave of persecution he would face because a year after he wrote this book, in 64 AD, we think he was killed in the first ferocious persecution of the church. Polycarp, such courage in the face of such brutal opposition. The Apostle Peter himself, such strength and resolute faith. From this book, from this book that's in front of us. And yet, not many of us are facing waves of persecution. We don't have people knocking at the front door to take us off to a stadium for our execution. And not many of us are thinking, well, if they're going to burn me, then maybe uh, I might cook a roast dinner. That might be appropriate for the people who are going to arrest me. Maybe beef or lamb, I'm not quite sure. This isn't the world that we live in. But many have observed the world that we live in is similar to the uh, context that the book of 1 Peter was written in. What sometimes is called the pre-Christian world. The pre-Christian world was characterised by hostility, by opposition, and Christians weren't in positions of power at this point. That wasn't until the 4th century where Christianity really ascended to the level of high government Now, Christians are in this hostile environment. They're in a minority. And a lot of people, kind of, when they sit back, they say, this is very similar to the world that we live in. A world where once Christianity was dominant, but as we've seen, I think many of us will agree that the influence of Christianity, at least in the Western world, is in decline. And so Christians today face not a dissimilar world 
to the early church. We are increasingly in the minority, on the margins of our society, excluded and in hostile environments very often. But the experience of Christians, both in the first century and also today, is not always that of extreme violence. Actually, the book of 1 Peter uh, really understands this because uh, more than a mention of violence in the book of 1 Peter, there is frequent mention of um, just a personal snub or mockery, a raised eyebrow of surprise. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, they malign you, you know, they, they snub you because they are surprised perhaps by your decisions that you don't act the way that they do. You see, the book of 1 Peter is this incredible stick of divine dynamite for the most explosive and extreme moments of life, but it's not just a stick of dynamite, it's also, it's also like a candle for the slow, steady burn of the everyday, ordinary Christian life. Because the letter of 1 Peter directly addresses very practical things, very practical things that we face in our life. At work, you've been unjustly treated by a boss. It's happened to you before and you're resigned to the fact that it's going to happen again. The book of 1 Peter directly and specifically deals with that situation. You're a school kid and you always feel left out. Everyone else seems like they fit in, but you don't. The book of 1 Peter specifically deals with that feeling. You're married to a non-Christian person. You've, cry, you've tried cross-stitching Bible verses on the tea towels at home, but your husband, well, he doesn't do the washing up, so he doesn't read them anyway. You're passionate about the gospel but you're so overwhelmed by the thought of speaking about Jesus to a friend. You're a husband who really loves his wife, but you keep missing the mark. The book of 1 Peter specifically deals with all these situations. You're a woman who knows that you know, real beauty is on the inside, but you're not sure why you only feel truly good about yourself when you think you look good. The book of 1 Peter specifically deals with that kind of thought and feeling. See, what Polycarp needed in his situation was the book of 1 Peter. What the early church needed as they faced opposition and severe persecution was the book of 1 Peter. And what we need is this book, the book of 1 Peter. And so we're looking at this book over 14 sermons, and you might be thinking, oh, geez, here we go, another three-year series in the one book. It's got five chapters. Can't you do it in six or seven? Well, no, because the book of 1 Peter is not merely a how-to manual, a survival guide for the Christian life under fire, because we're not coming to church simply to hear a sermon to hear a sermon, if you're lucky, it'll be a practical sermon and help you how to live. No, Peter's letter is practical and it's powerful. But it's practical and it's powerful for the building 
of a spiritual house, the church, not because it's about us. The letter of 1 Peter is about the cornerstone of our church. The book of 1 Peter is about that cornerstone that was rejected by man but chosen by God. The book of 1 Peter is about the overseer of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands at the centre of this book and each week as we come to hear and study and think and as we spend time throughout the week, we're going to meet Jesus, the overseer, the carer, the shepherd of our souls. And as we gather... Few as we are, insignificant as it might seem in our world, God reaches out to us in this moment, in this moment like no other moment in our week, in his threefold person, brick by brick, heart by heart, soul by soul, God is building us, his people, into a spiritual building. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, 1 Peter 1, verse 25. Because this is how the God, God always operates. This is his MO, speaking his word at creation, God operates. Speaking his word in redemption, inspiring his word in the scriptures and in the assembly of his people to sustain us, to build us as a church. 1 Peter is practical, but it's not practical because it's about us and about to how, how to make our lives a little easier or better. As one theologian put it, one cannot say anything about God while they are shouting man. We're up to point two in your outline. In the ancient world, uh, you know, when you get a letter, sometimes you have to flick through the pages to work out who it's from. Well, you didn't have to do that in the ancient world. They told you at the start. It's there in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Peter is the one who has written this letter. Peter was this big mouth perhaps we are familiar with. Uh, if we're from a different church tradition, perhaps a Catholic tradition, Peter is the one that's guarding or up near the pearly gates. Outspoken brash, perhaps. The first, though, in Mark's account, to make a bold declaration of who Jesus is. Peter's the first to say that Jesus is the Christ, but just as he does that, he rebukes Jesus when Jesus speaks about his death. And we know to the end, at the end of the Gospels, Peter is the one who would deny Jesus shamefully, painfully, three times. But wonderfully, we're told at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 21, verse 17, Jesus offers Peter an opportunity of forgiveness. Three times he says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Inviting Peter to love him, this fallen buffhead of a man. And it would seem that this encounter with the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus absolutely changed his life because the Peter we read in the book of Acts is not the Peter that we read in the Gospels. Peter is in this position of leadership in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, he faces strong opposition and persecution, and he is faithful. He receives a vision from God in Acts chapter 10, which paves the way for the Gospel to go further than just his type of people, Jewish people, to go to Samaria 
to go to the ends of the earth, to go to people like us. And so Peter was a person, a very ordinary, very flawed person. But he wasn't just a person, he was also an apostle. An apostle is someone who has witness with their own eyes, a resurrected Lord Jesus, and they have been commissioned by Jesus and for Jesus. And so person and position might seem intention, this failure of a disciple, and yet this apostle given such responsibility. But I think this is one of the beautiful things about this letter of 1 Peter, that Peter invites us to read this letter knowing that tension, knowing that he was a man who made very serious mistakes in the Christian life. But he was a guy. He was a man that God used powerfully because God had called him. And this tension in Peter's life is a tension that we see in the early church. Because as Peter writes to these Christians, they exist in this tension themselves. They're up to point three. Who are they? Well, who are these Christians? How does Peter describe them? What's there in the second bit of verse 1? To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Who are they? Well, the way Peter describes them, he could have described them in, in many ways, but he just drops three words to describe them. He says they're elect, they're strangers, and they're scattered. Firstly, they're elect. And that means if they're elect, they're loved by God. We're going to see that. And secondly, if they're strangers, they're not home anymore in this world. And thirdly, they're not some part of a, a centralised holy huddle in Jerusalem. No, they've been scattered They've been scattered because they've heard the call of their master to go to preach the gospel to all nations. And so firstly, Peter describes these Christian people as elect. The Old Testament refers to Israel as God's elect. The nation of Israel was chosen by God in, the one, in a wonderful and very significant passage about God's election. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel, this nation, is imagined as this orphan baby who's been discarded by the side of the road. And God is this man walking. And here is what Ezekiel says. He says in chapter 16, verse 6, Then I passed by, this is God talking, and saw you, Israel, kicking about, in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. God chose Israel. And this is not some dry clinical operation. It's not a conveyor belt of nations going before, before God and he then randomly chooses Israel. No, God elects the nation of Israel out of all the nations to be his special treasured possession. Why? Because he loves them. I know some Christians are uncomfortable with the idea of election because it seems as though it takes our 
kind of roll out of things. But the doctrine of election doesn't. The doctrine of election helps us understand who we are. Because when a baby is discarded on the side of the road, that baby has no ability to help themselves. What they need is someone to scoop them up, to care for them and to love them. And that is what we are. We are people who were helpless, who without God would not have chosen him. But God has seen us in our vulnerability, in our helplessness, and he has chosen us because he loves us. Uh, There are many sections where the Bible speaks about the doctrine of election. I'll just give you one. Uh, In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, It says this, when the Gentiles heard the word of the Lord, they were glad and they glorified God. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. One thing I just want you to notice, it doesn't say that you were ordained because you believed. It says you believed because you were ordained. Secondly, strangers, strangers in their own land. This word strangers is used in the Old Testament and also in the New, and it's got this sense of a temporary resident. They're elect, they're being chosen by God, but because of that, their relationship to this world is one of now like like a traveller. like a migrant who wants to fit in. I lived in a country uh, for close to a year in England, and so I don't think you could look at me and tell I wasn't English. Um, uh, I suppose if you spoke to me, that would become apparent. But, you know, when you live overseas, even for a little time, you just want to fit in, don't you? You just want to feel like this is home. But there are so many unwritten rules and little things that you don't even know that you're transgressing when you're in a different context and where you're in a different culture. And that experience of a migrant coming to a new country, I think, really helpfully describes what it's like to be a Christian in this world. This is not somewhere that we fit. Now, we want to fit in. We want to fit in in our world. We want to fit in in whatever context we're in. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But we have moved. We have travelled. We have migrated. We have left, in one sense, this world to find a new home, a new loyalty and a new purpose. And this was Peter's experience Peter, before he met Jesus, could have walked in to Jerusalem, would have walked into Jerusalem, being greeted, being welcomed. But now that he was following Christ, he couldn't walk pretty well anywhere without being excluded, marginalised and persecuted. Roger and Sam last week had a little baby. And for those of us who have had a baby... Bringing a baby into the world is like, well, it, it, it's, it's like entering a new world, isn't it? It's immense. It's significant. It so consumes you. And yet, at the same time, you've still got to sleep. 
you still got to eat. And so there's this sense in which you're in two worlds. You're in this new world of looking after a baby, but you're also in this old world where the realities of that old world still exist, and that is us. We've been brought into this new reality such that we are now strangers, but that doesn't mean that we're excluded from this world. We don't abandon God's world. We're exiles. C.S. Lewis says that we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. See, our problem is not wanting to fit in. It's right to want to fit in. It is just a normal human emotion to fit into whatever context we're in. The issue for us is not wanting to fit in. The issue for us is where we fit in. When God created the garden, when he created Adam and Eve, they fitted there perfectly. And when God redeems his people from this world, they fit perfectly, not here now, but in heaven and in eternity. Because this was Jesus' experience, wasn't it? Jesus was a stranger in his world. The Gospel of John tells us that he came to his own, his very own people, but they didn't recognise him. Jesus, um, from Jesus' own mouth, he says that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was, or was an alien, was a stranger in this world as much as we are. And thirdly, Peter says that we are scattered for a purpose. Uh, in that passage from Ezekiel chapter 16, it describes Israel uh, as God has elected them, he's picked them up as his little baby, he's cared for them, he's nourished them, this baby has grown up, he's clothed this now teenager or this adult, and this adult in Ezekiel chapter 16 quite likes the clothes that he's wearing and the food that he is eating and... We hear in Ezekiel that Israel forgets the God who rescued them, the God who saved them, the God who elected them. And so they're carried off into exile. They're scattered, is the word. But here in 1 Peter, Christians are not scattered because of their disobedience. Here Christians are scattered for a different purpose. They're scattered... For 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that we may declare the praises of him who caught us out of darkness into his wonderful light. It could also be, as some scholars have noted, that uh, during the time of Emperor Claudius, between 41 and 40 and 54 AD, what the Roman uh, emperor did was he wanted to start new cities and the way he did that is he would take a thousand odd people from Rome and he would transplant them in this new city. Well guess what cities had that kind of history? All the cities mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1 and so I think Peter is also using this reality of what's happened in these cities that he's uh, writing to to say that it's not the emperor who has sent you to build a Roman city as you are scattered, but it is the Lord God himself 
who has sent you and scattered you, not to build a colony of Rome, but to be part of building a colony of heaven. And so we are scattered for the sake of mission, for the sake of taking the gospel of Jesus to our community. And finally, we see in Peter's life, Peter the person and Peter the apostle, a failure who was restored. And in his restoration was a man who was faithful and to most, to, uh, as far as we can tell, obeyed. And he spent the rest of his life after he encountered the risen Lord Jesus, trying to strengthen his brothers and sisters with this same gospel, writing letters like this one of 1 Peter. And this is a great reminder for us because what we think so often is a disqualification for serving Jesus is not what God thinks. Our world thinks that we have to be highly intelligent, highly able to be effective for God. But God doesn't think that. He uses very ordinary people and he uses very ordinary means. And for those of us who are highly intelligent, highly capable, you know what he does? He humbles us in our gift and our talent such that we have to simply rely on not ourselves but on him. You see, what God does so often in our lives is he turns what seem to us stumbling blocks ends of the road he turns them from stumbling blocks into stepping stones as God calls ordinary people like us so often we are confronted with the disappointment and reality of our lives we ourselves as we think about who we are we're painfully made aware of our failures we think we're a basket case for doing anything for God but remember Peter an ordinary man a failure in so many ways, who had met the risen Lord Jesus. And when you meet the risen Lord Jesus, that changes you. That gives you a courage and gives you an opportunity that you wouldn't ever have without him. Peter the Apostle, so quick with his words but slow with his heart, so awful in his failure. Praise God that he would use such a man to give us such a foundation and such a rock. And we need to ask God that he would cause us to be useful. People so caught often in our failure and our weakness. We won't be useful if we keep moaning about how our world changes and keeps moving away from its Christian heritage. We won't be useful if we're overcome by other people's rejection of us. We won't be useful if we're so consumed by pursuing our own comfort at the cost of others. But we'll be useful if we've met the risen Lord Jesus. And we know that he can work through people like us. That we might, at the end of our lives, say like Polycarp, as he thought of his life, 86 years, he had served God. How are we going to serve God with the years that he has given us? Amen.